So good morning and welcome to Parenting Podcast Live at Brentwood Oaks. So in this 12-week session, we're inviting guests in and asking them the question, how do I talk to my kids about blank? Then we're filling in the blank with topics that were selected by class members through a survey. Uh, it, as parents and people who work with kids on a regular basis, it's so important that we learn to navigate these difficult conversations with our peers and then translate that into how we talk to our kids. And so we're just so grateful to have um, a wealth of knowledge and experience here at Brentwood that we can draw on in this class. And this isn't meant to be the end of the discussion, but the beginning, um, especially this topic, where hope that everyone can take this as a jumping off point and continue the conversation in their homes um, going forward. And so today's topic is how do I talk to my kids about violence in the Old Testament slash difficult Old Testament stories. And I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Ship for being here this morning. He is the Pat E. Harrell Professor of Old Testament at Austin Grad. Um, he has a BA and an MS from Pepperdine, as well as a Master's in Divinity and a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary. Uh, he's been involved in archaeological digs and has written and edited um, a number of books and articles. As well, his wife is Cherie. Is it Sherry or Cherie? Cherie. Cherie. Uh, either way, her, par- her her family calls her Sherry. She calls herself Cherie. Oh, how funny! <laughs> it's it's confusing. That's hilarious. And he also has two daughters, uh, Sarah and Rachel. Which I was thinking, if you named one Leah and one Rachel, that would have kind of been problematic. Another yeah. difficult yeah. <laughs> Old Testament fit. But um, so just to get started, we had everyone texting in examples of stories that they have trouble explaining to their kids. So the conquering, conquering the land of Canaan, Noah and the flood, Jonah, Cain and Abel, the slaughter at Shechem are a few examples that have come up. Um, And we obviously don't have time in this conversation to get into the specifics of every single story, but hopefully we'll try to address some of the overarching difficulties that we have. Um, So I think we want to start out by saying that we love the Bible. We cherish the Bible. We want to teach our children that we teach them songs about patting it and hugging it and things like that, which is so beautiful. And so I think the first question that I have is something that's particularly bothering me lately. Something I've been hearing from Christian friends, from writers, things is that, you know, the old Testament was written by humans with a very limited understanding. And so some of those things may not literally have happened the way they are recorded in the Old Testament. So would you say that as Christians, we're called to a faith that believes that these things literally happened the way we read them in the Old Testament? Yeah. um, As I mentioned to you earlier, uh, I I took the opportunity to make myself some notes (laughs) so I could focus on these. None of these are easy uh, questions. They're all profound questions, and this is one that uh, the cultured despisers of Christianity hit us with all the time. It's how can you trust this document when it's misleading or fabrication or, or myths or, or what have you? And in a, in a real way, I don't quite understand the question because to say literally happened, what does that mean? That means we take the literature seriously. And yeah, we do take the literature seriously, but in order to do that, we have to understand what type of literature each account is. 
in order to take it seriously, what kind of literature is it? Number one question. Mm -hmm. Is it, uh, if it's historical narrative, okay, I read historical narrative differently than I do poetry, differently than I do uh, a newspaper clipping, differently than I do a novel, differently than I do a parable. And so it's important to first get a sense of what kind of literature is it and what are the rules of engagement of that kind of literature before I can assess what literal means, right? Because sure. literal, I mean, to me, literal means I take, I take the text seriously as a, as a text of literature. Mm -hmm. If we're talking about historical narrative, which I think is what the question actually right. is, it's historical. What does it mean that it's historical? Uh, then I have, to, I have to decide, is the way they wrote literature, uh, historical literature, different from the way we do? Uh, what were the rules of their writing of historical uh, narrative? Uh, often it won't be sequential. Mm -hmm. Often it'll be telescope, meaning things that happened over a long period of time get scrunched into a little bit of time. Uh, often it'll be compressed, you know, lots of activity happening really quickly. Uh, often it'll be sermonic. And in fact, the historical literature of the Old Testament is bunch of sermons, really. Mm -hmm. Deuteronomy through Second Kings is sermons, sermonic. We don't expect Charlie to, to uh, give us a historical annal when he gets mm -hmm. up to preach, right? We expect exhortation from Charlie when he preaches. And so I think the expectations, we, we have too much expectation, too much and not enough. We don't expect what's really there to feed us we do expect it to conform to modern understanding of what history reporting is, and that's unfair. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. Now, if, if, if what is meant is, well, I can't, should I take Genesis 1 through 11? <laughs> Literally, again, I don't understand the question, because mm -hmm. how do you assess historical things that are prehistory? I can't <laughs> get back in the garden. There's flaming cherubim there, right? <laughs> They say, you can't come in here. So I can't videotape it. And so, uh, and history is, as one of my colleagues from Australia says, history is messy. <laughs> and so it's, it's difficult to assess. So I, I, to make a really long answer, to get to the point, I think we take it literally in the sense the author intended it to be taken as crisis literature for people in crisis and sermonic literature. And having said that, engage what kind of literature it is and take it as, literal, as literally as the literature itself suggests that it should be taken. Okay. Which may not be a great answer, no, but it's I, the best I, one I've got. I, no, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, I think my follow-up question is, how do we sort of do that with our kids? Yeah. You know, <laughs> um, because like, you know, taking Noah and the flood, it's a story right. we do with the kids all the time. It's got animals, they love it. And we kind of leave out the part that, that everybody dies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, what in your mind is the way to take all of the context that you're talking about and right. talk about that with our kids? Yeah, I think it's very important. Uh, I, I don't think we do justice. The Noah and the flood story is visceral. 
It is really, really intense mm-hmm. and is not a children's story. Really, not at all. Uh, it is about consequences for bad behavior, which I think kids understand automatically. There's consequences for being bad. <laughs> you, know? you suffer if you're bad. These were people that were really, really, re- the thought, uh, the intents of the heart of all people everywhere were only evil continually. Right, like how do you understand that? What's God supposed yeah. to do, though, right? Yeah. I mean, they understand consequences. I think every kid automatically understands consequences for bad behavior. I don't think we we really ought to drag them through in the fact that, you know, millions upon millions of people drowned and their bodies were, you know, (laughs) floating on the water. We don't have to drag them through all the details. But the focus of the story is on God's redemption and how he provides Mm -hmm. in spite of how bad people were. Mm -hmm. And so I I think they can get that too. Right. So sort of what I hear is focusing on not necessarily the details of these stories, but what, again, what is the author yeah. the sermon in yeah, this Yeah, what's story? the point? The point right. is there are consequences for bad behavior, but God provides a way. Right. And it's really not a story about cramming animals in a boat. <laughs> <laughs> right, there is exactly. that. Yes. And so along those lines, how relevant is the Old Testament to our lives today? And, you know, what is the purpose of us yeah. studying that? Uh, this is a question I get a lot. We're, we're so used to thinking, you know, what's new is good. What's new is better. You know, it's like the old has been replaced by the new. And there's a kind of truth to that, but there, it's very misleading. Uh, it's like saying, you know, the house is really great, but the foundation's not important. Mm. Yeah, try to build the house and have it stand without a foundation. The Old Testament is not the house, but it is the foundation. And so you can't, it's like saying, well, I don't really need the Old Testament. It's passe, right? It's, it's old. I just want the new. I just want the house, but I don't want it. I don't want what's in the ground. You know, I don't want to have my feet on the ground. So I think it's very, very important. Second point is the Old Testament reveals God uniquely through Jesus the Christ. But the Old Testament tells us who God the Father is and what he's like. And so we want to know how Jesus reflects the image of God. The Old Testament tells us what that image is. Mm -hmm. And so we lose theology, which is what? uh, Talk about God. It's it's, uh, uh, what? who God is and what he does, we lose it if we lose the Old Testament. So I think it's intensely relevant. I'm teaching right now a course in Old Testament prophets. I'm more convinced than ever. The 8th century prophets, uh, Micah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, are incredibly relevant for our day. The kinds of things that the prophets are countering are exactly what we see going on in our society. More, I think, than any other part of Scripture. Uh, if we want to get to our kids about what life is really like and what a response is, Ecclesiastes gives us just cold stone, you know, reality check between the eyes. And it deals, I think, directly with postmodernism. 
uh, and the questions of postmodernism. Ecclesiastes is the book for that. So I think, it, I think even in the details, it's intensely relevant mm-hmm. to us, besides being foundational and theological. Right. Well, and so just to pull out one thing you said about the Old Testament revealing us who God is, I right. mean, that is really uh, the biggest question I have is in First John 4, we hear about God is love. Right. And we teach our kids God is love. And we also teach our kids that killing is bad. Right. And so I think one thing that is very problematic for me is that there is a lot of killing in the Old Testament that's not only God sanctioned but it, it seems to be God ordered or God ordained in some in some way the conquest of Canaan which you mentioned and ha- is on the screen the death of the firstborn in Egypt the flood um, so how do we reconcile the God who God is love and then he also seems to be commanding yeah. the killing of all of these yeah. people uh, okay there there are there are two or three levels to right. this this is this is not a simple question this is the thing that modern atheists will jump on and say, like Richard Dawkins will in, in his book, will say, uh, if, if, the, if the stories are real, then God is a bloodthirsty tyrant and doesn't need to be, uh, doesn't deserve to be worshiped. And if they're not real, it's fabricated, really bloody, nasty fairy tales that don't need to be taught anyway because it's all phony baloney. Well, that's the kind of thing that our kids are hearing in school all the time. And the church needs to, con- needs to do this, what you're doing right now. I think it's absolutely critical for our kids to hear about all the stories and, and earlier rather than later. I think the earlier we can get to them, they're going to hear it in grammar school, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it is absolutely critically important. The second uh, thing that I want to say is we have a really strange view of what love is. We think in our culture that, that love is warm and fuzzy, and uh, if God's loving, he's a warm and fuzzy God. And that is completely opposite, opposed to a God of wrath, vengeance, and punishment. And I think that's a bit curious reasoning, because we don't, we expect parents to discipline their children. If they don't, it's hard to imagine how that's love, how indulging. We want, we want God to be like the avuncular uncle who passes out candy, right? And, and there are no real consequences for, for human misbehavior. But for God to take humans seriously, he must take human evil seriously. And so this dignifies us, the fact that God takes our misbehavior seriously is bestows dignity on humans otherwise otherwise we're so trivial he doesn't even care that our misbehavior goes completely unpunished and and uh, uh, un uh, what unaddressed so uh, what we what we're used to thinking is you know the God of wrath is somehow opposed to the God of the New Testament who is this warm and fuzzy, uh, benevolent grandfather-type God that gives his kids candy. And yet, I think love and wrath are flip sides of the same coin. I don't think that one is opposed to the other. Wrath, we think, well, wrath is just uncontrollable anger. No, it is God's judicial arm. It's his arm of justice. Uh, 
if God never responds to human evil to redress it, what does that say about God's love for the victim? Because sin always has victims, or it's hard to believe it's sin. If, if no one is hurt and there, there, are no, uh, there are no victims, how is it sin? I think sin always has a victim and that if God uh, doesn't redress wrong, then it's hard to believe that it's justice at all. But if God does, if his left hand of justice, if God acts in his role as judge, which we're uncomfortable with, then I think that's a good thing for those who suffer under evil, oppression, injustice, etc. It's a good thing for them. It may not be a good thing for those of us who may practice injustice. We may be uncomfortable with that. But I think it's, I think it's very important. I think our, our definition of love is skewed. Mm. Uh, one of the earliest heresies in Christian history was that of Marcion in the second century uh, AD, who said the God of the Old Testament is not worthy to be considered the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's this angry, wrathful, vengeful God. The God of the New Testament is warm and fuzzy, and he even tossed out uh, many of the books of the New Testament, which depict God in a way that's very similar to the Old Testament, mm-hmm. okay? Jesus comes riding in on a white horse with vengeance in the book of Revelation, right? He's, he's not, like C.S. Lewis said, God is not a tame lion, right? right. He's, not, he's not tame, right? But he's good. But he is good. And, and I think that's something that's very important to keep, uh, to keep in mind, that God's justice, the judicial arm of God, is not an evil, bad, wrong thing. What does Paul even say? Is, do I attribute sin to the law? No, he says, God forbid. It's righteous and just and holy and good, mm-hmm. right? We're the ones that are messed up about it. But God must redress wrong or, or, or grace and love are meaningless. They mean if there are no consequences for sin, then grace means nothing. Mm-hmm. at all it's you might as well it's like it's like saying well I forgive you what did I do well you know nothing. <laughs> yeah I mean it doesn't matter well right. then okay it's like an optional rule <laughs> right yeah absolutely and so you know for the conquest of Canaan I, I know you said the article you've started on is five pages long and isn't done yet so I don't right. know if this is even something that you feel can be answered um, but I have opinions. (laughs) So for that, I mean, would we tell our kids, you know, God told Israel, you can have this land and there are people living in it. And because they are sinful, because they are hurting people, you can destroy them in order to take this land. Yeah. I mean, is that the, yeah, yeah. this is the hardest, uh, the hardest question. It depends on sort of what religious community you're in. Mennonites would say, well, the whole theology is God fights the battle. They, they don't, like Jericho, they walk around in circles and blow trumpets, and God gives them the city. So that's the first response. Whose battle is it? If God is perfectly just and vengeance, well, even the New Testament, vengeance is mine, right? Not yours, vengeance is mine. Then God knows how to perfectly execute vengeance in an appropriate way as his legal 
the, what God's legal arm of justice. He knows how to do it perfectly. We do not. So the first response is the Mennonite response, which is all we do is trust God and he fights the battle and we go in and take over in the Old Testament. That doesn't answer all the questions. That answers some of them. Exodus and Jericho doesn't answer all the questions. The second thing is war happens. And, uh, you know, uh, those are simply reported as is. They're reported and, and often not evaluated at all. Uh, in terms of annihilating Canaanites, there are exactly three examples of that. And, and that's it. And that is also what we see in the archeological record. We go digging around, which I do in, in the land of Israel, and we don't find destruction layers mm -hmm. of cities. Three, right. two, two or three. We, uh, Hatzor, yeah, annihilated. Uh, Jericho, it's hard for us to even know what happened in the mound at Jericho. It's difficult. Uh, the, it's ambiguous, the archeological record is. AI, we're not even sure where that is. Um, Lachish probably destroyed. We may have a couple of examples. The biblical record gives us three examples of devotion to the ban, devotion to destruction. That's it. Well, that is destruction, right? It is destruction. It wasn't wholesale slaughter everywhere. And generally speaking, it was in response to provocation. Mm -hmm. Not always, but generally speaking, it's response to provocation. Deuteronomy says drive them out. Joshua seems to focus on these three military campaigns. That's all there are. It's three military campaigns and wipe them out. Okay. In the first one is unprovoked, but the others are provoked. Uh, I don't know if that helps. Um, but Deuteronomy doesn't depict it that way. It says drive them out, mm -hmm. which I love the Hebrew word is garage, which sounds like garage, right? <laughs> so drive, drive them out, uh, not, not annihilate them. The other response that I think is helpful, you alluded to Genesis 15, God tells uh, Abraham, it's going to be 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Right. And so in the same way that God wipes out everybody in uh, the flood narrative in Genesis 6, in the fullness of time, when the thoughts and intents of the heart of all people are only evil, what's God supposed to do? Eventually, he must act. Mm -hmm. Our problem, I think, is with non-combatants. We think, well, men, women, children, right? Little babies, whatever. To the ancient, a little Canaanite is a Canaanite, right? Corporate identity is an important thing in the ancient world that we, don't, we, under, we understand individual responsibility. We don't get the whole corporate thing, but they did not begin by thinking of the individual. They began by thinking of the, the big group, right? right? Uh, the tribe, the nation, that's where that, your identity is that. Mm -hmm. Now, they also understood you were an individual, but only secondarily, only within that group. Mm -hmm. So if you're gonna stop Canaanites from sacrificing their children, which they did regularly, how do we, uh, what's God supposed to do? Eventually he must act. And so that's the theology of Genesis 15. In the fullness of time, when their iniquity was fully mature. Mm -hmm. And again, that's God's deal, not ours. Right. So there are, there are several ways of approaching this that help make sense of those, of those mm -hmm. battles. 
Right, I appreciate that. Um, I do want to see if there are any questions from the class. I think that the next piece will try to maybe go a little bit into the story of David and address specific things um, about that story. But does anyone have any questions? I have a question, kind of a, more of a statement, yeah. and it's, so it doesn't really require a response, but it's just something that was just on my mind, and I feel like just from my background, I was taught that you have to believe the Bible word for word, and I feel like our children are going to be served at some point in their lives, their um, spiritual lives with a choice to, to ha and have to simplify their answer, uh, right. believe this in all of its entirety or, or not. And I guess I struggle, even still, with taking some of these stories and what's happening with them and categorizing them as, again, like I was taught, believe every single thing or categorizing them in some of the, and, and, and hopefully no one um, kicks me out of saying it. <laughs> under the it's a safe place. Of a fable or of a character building story that we might tell our children, such as, you know, the, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. And, and again, it's just a, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I think it's an important statement. Uh, and again, I, I think we don't take the Bible seriously if we try to read it as we would the front page of the Wall Street Journal. That's not taking the Bible seriously. That's forcing it into a different realm entirely than it belongs. I think we do take it seriously if we try to engage it as, it is certainly literature. It's also historical documents, but it's certainly literature. And if, if we take it seriously that way, Jonah, uh, you know, people debate that. I think it's curious. What gets lost is the point of the story. <laughs> What's the point of the story? It's not whether a fish can swallow a human. That's not the point of the point of the story has to do with does God hear all those who cry out to him? And every Gentile in the whole book cries out to God, and God hears every one of them. The only guy who doesn't cry out is the sole Israelite in the book who bellyaches, and I don't call that crying out to God. He complains mm -hmm. to God. Uh, the one time he cries out to God in the belly of the fish, and God saves him. <laughs> you know? And so even though they're dirty Assyrians, and uh, were they bloodthirsty? Yes, and God hears even them. So it seems to me that, uh, that sometimes when we say, well, yeah, we take, it, we take it seriously because we take it word for word, literally, in a kind of a strange modern literalist sense mm -hmm. that would make no sense to an ancient person. Does that make sense? One, uh, yeah. one statement I've heard, and I, you can respond to this, and it's been helpful for me, was someone's kid asked them, did this happen exactly this way? And the response was, I don't know if it happened exactly this way, but what I know is that it's true. Oh yeah. And that there's truth in this story that we are meant to, to glean from this. And true, again, we have that sense of that means it literally happened this way, but that's not the only way that truth it yeah, reveals like, itself. Like, like, uh, like uh, true as in reporting on the evening news, but even that, what does that even mean? Because right, sure, it depends it on which, uh, <laughs> you know, which network you're watching, right. it's going to get reported differently. We have four Gospels, and they tell uh, Mark 7, Matthew 15, Canaanite woman slash Syrophoenician woman, healing story of her demon-possessed daughter. They're not reported the same way. And the theologies are very different, depending on uh, Matthew's interests and concerns for his community of faith, and Mark's are different. 
And so it gets reported differently. Mm -hmm. What does that mean when we talk about, is it literally true? Yes, it's literally true. Right. But what does that mean historically? Well, I don't know. I, uh, Jesus possibly didn't exactly say these words in either account. I don't want to be in the position of having to say, well, Mark is more true than Matthew, <laughs> or Matthew is more true than Mark. That's, that's, that's a nonsensical mm-hmm. statement. Mm. I'm sorry? If you have people, if you have four people telling all exactly the same story, yeah, yeah. it sounds like they all fabricated it instead of told their own point of view. Yeah, and, and the point of view, the perspective of the biblical writers is very important because mm-hmm. they're humans. God used people of clay to, uh, uh, to write these documents as opposed to every other a sacred text on the planet, which is like a golden tablet that falls out of heaven or something. God used vessels of clay. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I've heard a phrase that um, God lets his children tell the story. Tell his story. story, Yeah. Yeah. God lets his children tell his story. So it comes with different types of literature. Yeah. It comes with different perspectives and different purposes and points. And, and it reflects the technology, the cosmology, the science, mm-hmm. the philosophy, and the religious impulses of 1000 BC, 1400 BC, 500 BC. It reflects all that, as it should. We're the ones that have the problem, not the text of scripture, because mm-hmm. we don't understand that their way of composing a book, writing, and reporting very different from ours. The Quran or the Book of Mormon, yeah. Or just, or like, God zapped the writers and they wrote it, and then yeah, yeah. But that's so problematical uh, because Scripture. I mean, this is a complex question, (laughs) but it's incarnational theology. I think it's very, very important that God came down as a human Mm -hmm. baby, right? How's that even possible? Folly to the Greeks, right? Uh, what fo- was a foolishness to the Greek? And stumbling, a stumbling block, block to, to the, the Jews. Jews. Uh, that that's difficult, but that is how God reveals Himself to us through the messiness of human history, through through humanity, and that's the problem that moderns and postmoderns have with it. They want a perfect everything but God used the vessels of clay mm-hmm. to bring about a message through a baby in a stable for crying out loud and it's the same thing with scripture our problem is we don't want a human bible and yet it is and that's the beauty of it is God lisping to us like small children like whatever one of you said it's exactly right. Well, and that's, it's our definition of perfect as well, right? It, right. It's perfect in what God intended it Correct. to be and to do. Yeah. It's just our definition of perfect that. Yeah, is, is the <laughs> science of the three-story universe of the ancients perfect science? No, <laughs> it's not ours. But you know what? In 5,000 years, people look back to the 21st century and say, they, they, this was the, like the Middle Ages. They understood nothing. And they would be right. <laughs> we don't. 
You know, we, we're so arrogant about our scientific point of view, we think that's the be all and end all. And you know, how long ago did, did the assured results of science say there are nine planets in the solar system, it's a pretty orderly place, we know everything about it. Not very many years ago. Right. And now that's just false. We don't even know how many planets are out there. We have no <laughs> clue. <coughs> right. What we don't know fills the universe. What we do know fills a thimble. <laughs> and we don't deserve to be arrogant Absolutely. about it. Absolutely. Uh, so do you think, though, in thinking of it like that, I think, because I was raised similarly, like, this is, this is what happened, this is how it happened, this is what happened, um, that it opens up the playing field, I guess, for like, well, yes, that's what the Bible says, how we were created, or the creation story, but really it's just a story, or yeah, it talks about a flood, but the prince, that didn't really happen, it's just we're supposed to learn that God is mighty and could wipe us all out, or we, there are consequences for our behavior. And to me, that's, that, then I, that changes completely my view of God, because I believe the flood happened, right. and it was a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if not, then it's like, maybe he's not as powerful yeah. as I think. It's, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, to me, it seems to like murky some of the water, right. especially with people who don't have as much knowledge and as wisdom and right. study. Yeah. Well, let me uh, l let me let me back up a click and say I agree with you. Uh, I do not want to leave the impression I mean, did these, did the historical narrators think they were writing history? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, when it says all create, everything, you know, under heaven, the entire Eretz, the entire cosmos was inundated. What does that mean? Does that mean the globe? They didn't understand globe. That was not part of their cosmology. Then if we do take that literally, we have to also literalize the storehouses of the rain and the sleet and the snow up in the dome of the heavens and that dome needs to be a hard surface like that if we're going to take it literally because that's their understanding what kept the chaos waters out because the water comes from up there see it's very important for us to understand that their cosmology is not our cosmology that doesn't mean that we're not taking it literally or seriously that means we do have to transfer some kind of understanding of ancient views to the modern day for it to make any sense at all was there a flood absolutely was there a great flood absolutely and lots of ancient writings reflect it but how much of the world got inundated well all the world knew which was turkey to iran armenia to arabia that's all they knew. That, I suggest, was inundated. That's the entire Eretz. It, it's hard to imagine, and there's no, I don't think there's any way to reconcile an uh, inundation in New Guinea or Norway or something like that. And that makes us look silly to people like Richard Dawkins. But to suggest, you know what, we can take it literally and seriously and understand what it means by, it's not what it says it's what it means right that that is important for us what does it mean and try to engage it seriously that way that's what i mean but if it if it suggests it's historical narrative then okay what's uh, how does it report when you get more than one story when you get more than one account that's that's about the same account like you do between let's say chronicles and kings then compare them 
what's the point of view of this author, what's the point of view of that author, but we are taking the historicity of it seriously. But the details, the, the flow, the theology is going to be very different because it's a different perspective. Does that make sense? No, I'm quite conservative about, about these issues. Well, yeah. and so that's what I'm wondering if maybe, because there's a way we just say to our kids, if we don't have all of that knowledge right, sure. of how to study ancient literature, we just make sure as we, we talk about these stories that they understand the importance of context in yeah. whatever they're reading. Yeah. So like, I don't understand all of that context. We can look into it and research it. What I know is context is important. And, Absolutely. you know, yeah. making that a big part of how we talk about these stories with yeah. our kids along with the message of that right who got it, it. if the problem is with genesis 1 through 11 then you know what that's prehistory to talk about it historically implies that we can take a shovel and go dig it up and for the most part genesis 1 through 11 we cannot and so we're left with story and that's fine too mm -hmm. and so when i teach it i don't i don't i don't talk about how we can go dig up this stuff and find the Garden of Eden, like I saw on Discovery Channel a few years ago. <laughs> like, what, on, what on earth is that? Go find the Garden of Eden? No. Flaming angels. <laughs> you know, you, none shall pass, right? So, you know, it, it's, we're, it, we're asking all the wrong questions. Right. But I think, um, I was going to think, too, like, we have to build <coughs> their background of these stories yeah. so that when we're they're older, they're gonna, they can construct and then deconstruct and deconstruct and deconstruct because it is like a continual process of trying to dig through the context and the literary right. style. And, but right. we need to have the foundation of, of the stories. Sure. Right. Yeah, and the story is not going to lead them wrong. Right, that's a good point. The story is not going to send them down the primrose path and the, you know, towards Marcy and the heretic or something. It's not gonna do that. Right. The story, if we focus on what the intent is, what it's trying to teach us, for all the things we don't know, those are generally pretty clear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Are there any other questions from the class? We only have five minutes, so I don't know how far we'll get into this little bit about David, but um, I just thought maybe you could give us an example, and maybe I'll just pick one of these. Um, of how when we're telling the story of David with our children, one example that came to my mind was that Jesus said, you shall love your, or uh, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And what we see in the story of David, and especially David and Goliath, which is a very common children's story, right. um, is not, again, loving, you have mentioned the definition of love, right. but it's not, David's not sitting back and praying for his enemies. He's going out and he's exacting God's retribution. Yeah. And so is that as Christians, I don't, I don't want to tell my child, it's your job to be the hand of God and exact retribution on your enemies. So how do we kind of reconcile yeah. those two? Uh, again, it's, it's not really a, a children's story, uh, <laughs> but know. yeah, the whole Goliath thing. You censor so much and even children's yeah. storybook. Number one, story. David's not a saint. Clearly, <laughs> is he a man after God's own heart? Yeah, what does that mean? Well, it gives me great comfort because I know that I, I don't have to be perfect to be after God's own heart because David was certainly not that. We want a marble, we want a, a what, uh, uh, the, the guy, uh, oh, not Da Vinci, the other, Michelangelo. Michelangelo. We want a Michelangelo statue of David that's marble and perfection, right? That's what we want in, in David. That, that ain't gonna happen, 
right? He's a, he's a murderer and adulterer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Had all kinds of family problems. And so, number one, uh, the, the heroes of the Bible, for the most part, are visceral, and they're three-dimensional, and they're human, and they're flawed. Every one of them. And that gives me comfort. The second response with this is, Goliath is a bully, and they want to kill Israelites, and it's war. We don't, we don't ask those questions in wartime to respond to an aggressor. 9-11, we remember that very vividly. And uh, I, I remember telling people at my school, because they said, you know, there's, buildings have been bombed. And so we went down, we suspended class, went down and watched it on TV, and I said, I believe this war. I believe that's what's going to happen. That's in fact what happened. And nobody, almost no one, was saying, well, we need to... Uh, you know, not do this because, you know, uh, they're misguided or whatever. Uh, we need to respond to aggression. And so I think it's important to take that context also. It's wartime, and they're fearful, and he's a bully, and they want to kill and enslave Israelites, and David is the only one who says, in the name of the Lord, stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's an important point that kids can get. They may not understand war, but they understand bullies, you know, yeah. and people who want to hurt them. They well, get that. And it's also interesting because then David is the one who, when Saul, who's an aggressor after him, and he has a chance to kill Saul. Does not. He doesn't. Correct. Right. Yeah. So both of those things are reflected in the story right. of David. Um, well, thank you so much. We had more, but uh, it's been a really wonderful discussion. Appreciate so much your preparation and your time. And next week My we pleasure. have um, Mel, which are coming back, and he's going to be talking to us about how do I talk to my kids about evil in the world. Um, would you mind closing us in prayer sure. before we go get our kids? Sure. Uh, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, who spoke to your people from uh, Fiery Mountain, in unapproachable holiness and unapproachable light, and yet you have come down to us and condescended to us, spoken to us through your servants, the prophets and apostles, patriarchs of old, and who have spoken to us through your Son. We come before you not because of any goodness of our own, but because of the goodness of Jesus, the Christ. And so we dare to come before your throne and ask for your cleansing and your commissioning so that we may walk in the light each day and we may minister and speak and live as we ought. Give us wisdom in, in speaking to our children, to those around us. Help us to have clarity of thought and warmth of heart. Help us to be examples of faithfulness to our children who, in spite of all the questions and problems, will see the image of your Son firmly in our lives. Send us forth from this place with a song in our lips and with your word in our hearts, for this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.